Buenos días, ¿cómo está? Bien. ¿Está bien para entrar? Sí. En uh, many ways, uh, Alejandra Pinto and her, and her husband, David, uh, their experiences are emblematic of the thousands of Venezuelans who have been coming over. Antonio Olivo covers local government for The Post. And in September, he met a couple, Alejandra and David Pinta, at this hotel in D.C. So David was a soldier in the Venezuelan military. Uh, in 2019, when there was a mass uh, upheaval in that country and an attempt to oust um, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. And so they walked from the border of Colombia through the Darien Gap, where they slept outside, where they uh, went hours, uh, sometimes full days, with their four-year-old daughter and 11-year-old son, without water and without food or drinking water from the rivers, uh, passing corpses along the way uh, and getting sick. They wound up inside of a uh, shelter in the border town of Laredo and uh, didn't really have an idea of where they were going to go next. They didn't know anybody in the United States, didn't really have it mapped out. And inside this church, Alejandra met um, somebody who informed her of the buses. Uh, uh, one of the stopping points uh, was in Eagle Pass, which was about an hour away um, by car. And so this person in the church helped them get to Eagle Pass, and uh, that's where they picked up the bus to Washington, D.C. <laughs> Since this spring, nearly 10,000 migrants have arrived on buses in D.C. It's all part of a political tactic by Republican governors who are relocating migrants from places like Texas and Arizona. The problem is, there is no plan for when they stepped off those buses. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 3rd. Today... The concerted effort from Republican leaders to transport migrants from conservative areas to liberal ones. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis flying roughly 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who's bussed 11,000 migrants to New York City. Texas dropping off two more busloads of migrants in Washington, D.C., this time outside the home of the vice president. Tonight Caught in the middle of all of this were people like Alejandra and David. Antonio spoke with our host, Martine, about it. They accepted it uh, uh, with, with happiness. They were glad to get a free ride somewhere, and they had heard of Washington, D.C., obviously, and thought that, that, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good place to go. So I want to go back and talk a little bit more about why it is that Alejandra and her family ended up on this bus uh, to come to D.C. And, and what were the political forces that kind of made that, made that possible for her? So can you, can you go back to, you know, as we saw these bus rides ramping up um, from states like Texas and then also from Florida, um, and talk about why Republican leaders came up with this idea to start busing migrants to, quote-unquote, democratic cities or, or liberal cities? I mean, these bus programs 
they go back to the Trump administration um, where the idea was floated to send uh, people who were crossing over into uh, so-called sanctuary cities, essentially to teach those places a lesson. Uh, the lesson being that, um, you know, if you want these people so much, you deal with them, you'll see how much of a problem it is. Um, that uh, never took hold during Trump's presidency. Um, but Ted Cruz uh, championed the idea with some legislation last year uh, that didn't go anywhere, but th that did name particular locations as, as destinations for, for uh, sending the migrants. One of those locations, coincidentally, was Martha's Vineyard. And tell me a little bit more about some of the other criticisms that have been brought up about how Republicans and, and people like DeSantis and Abbott have done this and, and why they find these buses and charter planes so egregious. There is a, a widespread belief now that uh, many of the migrants have been tricked into taking those buses or in some way misled or coerced and uh, in, into in um, jumping on a bus that may not have been um, full enough to, to depart. With respect to the charter flights, that's even more egregious. Dozens of people uh, got on the plane to Martha's Vineyard, and they were handed uh, brochures after being uh, aboard, and uh, that brochure offered services and jobs and other opportunities that uh, weren't really there for them. And um, they learned when they got off that uh, the real circumstance was that they were in a community that did not expect them. And that did rally to help them after they learned what was going on. But uh, now those, those migrants are sitting in a federal processing center in Cape Cod waiting to find out what happens next with them. And, you know, over these past few months, I, you know, I've seen Republican governors talking about this and talking about how they feel that their states have taken on an unfair burden uh, of the costs of taking care of people who are coming over the border. But I wonder, like, from your perspective and from people you've talked to, how much of, of these buses do you think are kind of a logistical solution versus a political solution? Like, do, do you think that there is a real part of this where it's like, look, we don't have enough resources to take, to take care of these people, and we think that they actually would fare better if they were sent to a place like D.C. or Massachusetts where there might be more resources to, to help them versus, like, this is a way to essentially make a point and to win elections is by sticking it to the liberal cities. Well, the answer to that is complicated because it is both. It's true that in these border communities, there aren't really a ton of resources for somebody or for thousands of people to stay long term. Del Rio um, doesn't have shelters. Um, there isn't an infrastructure of support. There really aren't any NGOs or nonprofits to speak of. There are a few churches that help the migrants uh, as they pass through, but they're, it's not set up to, um, to absorb large populations of people for, for long periods of time, whereas places like Washington, D.C. and New York are. They do have a wider network of, of support. But on the flip side, Washington, D.C. and New York aren't really programmed to deal with migrants freshly arrived and their particular needs, the, the, the urgency, the psychological trauma, 
the um, the lack of ability to um, to work. Uh, many of the migrants who've come over are arriving with some kind of disability, uh, or have young children that are in need of care. So it is a lot. Antonio, I'm curious what were the conversations that you've had with some of the migrants that you talked to about how they feel around being essentially political pawns here, or if they even, like, understand that, or if they just see it more simply, like, I wanted to get to a place that I felt like I could start a new life, and this made it easier for me to to travel. Tell me a little bit more about what people said about that. Many of the migrants aren't aware of the politics behind this. They're not really thinking about uh, why the bus programs exist. It's just that they exist and that it's a means for them to get from one place to another where there might be work for them. And that is their ultimate objective is to find work. Buenos días, mi nombre es Bexi Marquez, venezolana. Tengo acá en... In Washington, D.C., tengo 25 días. And so inside the Stays Inn, we met a woman named Betsy Marquez, who um, also is from Venezuela, also anxious to find work after leaving uh, her country in July and making it through that uh, arduous journey. And, uh, when we were talking to her, there was an interesting moment where she basically didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, I was asking her, what she thought of uh, the fact that uh, uh, she and and other migrants were essentially part of this larger political drama. Por eso están mandando a Washington D.C. a Nueva York y no sé si si has escuchado eso de de Massachusetts, de una isla que se llama Martha's Vineyard por razones políticos. Her first response was, well, the buses are free, and therefore that's why we're taking them. And there are no other buses that are free that are going to other places. And so, you know, that's why you have so many people coming. Pero es que, es que lo más tentativo que se ve allá cuando uno está en la frontera es esto, porque ellos son los buses que ofrecen de gratis. And I asked her, but uh, you're not really thinking then about the uh, political themes behind all of this. You're just really thinking about trying to find a place where you can get work. And she said, of course, of course I am. I'm thinking about how I can get work. And then I asked her, well, but what do you think about the fact that there is a political theme behind the bus programs? And Tatiana Laborde, who is uh, director of uh, one of the temporary shelters, the temporary shelter, I should say, uh, happened to be uh, in the room with us. And she basically laid it out and told her it's that the buses are part of this effort to make a political point. They want to show President Biden that they don't want immigrants
Y por eso para que se llene todo esto de, de migrantes. Sí. Nah, guara. And Betsy uh, paused at that and said, oh, uh, they don't want immigrants? Um, and she was confused about that and finally did understand, concluded, well, all countries are alike, aren't they? Qué tremendo. Todos los países son así, ¿verdad? Juegan con todo. Nah, guara, qué tremendo, horrible. After the break, we'll hear more from Antonio about what the political endgame is here and why Republican governors think this is a good idea. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. How have we seen people like Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis really wave this around as a symbol of how much they're willing to, like, push back against what they see as, like, an, an untenable situation of, of immigration across the border? Well, yes, Governor Abbott and, and Ducey in Arizona and DeSantis in Florida in particular are using this as a, sort of a political bludgeon uh, and, and are saying that this is essentially the fault of the Biden administration, um, which is a simplistic view of a global problem. Um, but they are getting traction uh, in Republican circles. They're being cheered on, and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight to the, to the bus programs out of Texas and Arizona. Greg Abbott is raising money off of it. Um, people are donating to the bus program to keep it going. And, and so um, it has some political resonance for them, and uh, it's caused some problems in Washington, D.C. politically because of the uh, inability of the uh, nonprofits, volunteer groups to absorb this population. A debate uh, develops between um, the local government, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser's administration, and the federal government. We need space, uh, and we we need the federal government to be involved. So I've asked um, for the deployment of the Guard, as long as we need the Guard to deal with the humanitarian crisis, that we expect to escalate. The number of people crossing the border seeking asylum, we expect to only go up. Bowser asked for assistance from the Biden administration to help process these individuals and get them set up. and. Uh, requested that the National Guard be deployed to do that. The uh, Pentagon turned her down twice, saying essentially that uh, the troops weren't trained to, to handle that. Uh, meanwhile, the nonprofit organization, the uh, sphere of nonprofits were pressuring Bowser to do more to, to help them, and, and she was reluctant to use city funds 
uh, taking city funds from one program and and uh, allocating them uh, toward this resource uh, uh, until essentially she was backed into a corner and um, declared this a public emergency, and um, that led to um, the unleashing of $10 million in city funds uh, and the creation of a new office of migrant services that is geared toward assisting these people over the long term. And Tony, as you describe this, I mean, I think in some ways it is interesting to see that even in a place like D.C., there is this kind of, um, I don't know if finger pointing is the right phrase, but like people looking around being like, is this really our problem? Like, this can't be our problem. This is this seems more like your problem between the, the D.C. government, the federal government, these nonprofits. And in some ways, I feel like, uh, I don't know, almost like makes the case that DeSantis and Abbott want to make that like this is actually a very difficult problem to deal with. And it's a real strain on a place to have to come up with solutions. That is one of the arguments that I've heard from Abbott uh, and 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 Ducey, um, in particular, that there is a collective responsibility here, that it's just not on the border communities to to deal with this situation, or it's just not on the border states to deal with the situation. That is a national problem, uh, and here in the Washington D.C. area. That argument can be extended to to say that it's not just a Washington D.C. problem; it's a regional problem. It's it's something that uh, um, not just um, you know one particular government can accomplish. I'm also seeing questions about whether or not it is in fact legal for the governor of a state like Texas or Arizona or Florida to send asylum seekers who arrive in their state to somewhere else in the country. What are the what are the questions around that, or, or is there an answer to to whether or not this is a, a legal thing for a governor to do? There are questions surrounding that. I, I believe there is a lawsuit um, uh, in the works uh, over the question of whether or not these individuals are being trafficked, uh, and particularly the children. Then there's the question of the funds that were used for these bus programs. Abbott and DeSantis have used uh, funds that were bent for pandemic relief. There is uh, an investigation into that as well. And as the Washington Post reported, uh, that it's questionable whether or not using pandemic aid for uh, a ostensibly uh, political purpose is is legal and, and therefore is in some way punishable. So, so what happens now to people like Betsy who were sent north um, by bus or by plane and who are here now? And are they going to receive asylum hearings soon? Like, what are the prospects for them? Well, some of these people have really legitimate asylum claims. Uh, Alejandra Pinto and her husband, David, uh, for instance, uh, it's hard, hard to argue that they do well in Venezuela. And the thing about Venezuela is that uh, they don't accept deportations from the United States. The United States does not uh, recognize Maduro's government as legitimate. So they have nowhere else to go, essentially. Uh, and so the chances for them are, are, it seems to me at least, pretty strong. That being said, many of the claims are more economic in nature, uh, and, and this, particularly those who are not from Venezuela. It's a little muddier there. And um, uh, I don't know how those cases would turn out, but it would benefit 
uh, everyone uh, if they were in the right place. And that's another problem with uh, respect to the bus programs and, and the flow of migrants in general is that many of them are in cities where that are not close to where their court appointments are, either because of confusion. Um, so I did meet like a couple from Nicaragua that was uh, at, at that same hotel and uh, husband, uh, his paperwork is all in order and his U.S. immigration sort of uh, reporting to ICE uh, 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 appointment was uh, in the Fairfax County area. Yet his wife, her appointment was in New York and they didn't know how they were going to get there. Uh, people who were sent to Martha's Vineyard went there without knowing where they were going, uh, and they had uh, their interviews in places like Texas or New York or where have you. And and so that's been a complicating factor for a lot of these individuals is that uh, they don't really know how the U.S. immigration system works. And there's a big chance that they would be rejected, their asylum claims would be rejected in absentia because they're just not there at the appointment uh, when they're supposed to be or where they're supposed to be. Among the thousands of, of people who are making their way north are the elderly, uh, people who are on crutches, uh, in wheelchairs, uh, essentially, uh, those of the the most vulnerable uh, in, in in their countries, and they're on their way slowly uh, to the United States. And uh, Alejandro Pinto has a brother who lost a leg in a motorcycle accident, and he has been walking uh, through the jungle, and I believe now is in somewhere in Central America, uh, and he is using crutches uh, along the way. And I should point out that. Uh, the trip through the jungle, the Darien Gap, includes very steep inclines and declines, very muddy, lots of uh, rocks to climb over, um, rivers to to wade through. And so he's doing this with one leg. While we were in the room, David showed us a video of this brother who was being interviewed, testifying to his desire to to make it all the way north and the reasons why he was coming north on his crutches and he actually did address the political aspect one part of the political aspect of this which was he was talking about how nobody who is uh, part of this uh, massive uh, uh, exodus of men and women and children from Venezuela are coming to the United States to do any kind of harm. In fact, he was saying that we want to try to um, uh, elevate ourselves and, and by extension help elevate the United States. Antonio, thank you so much for explaining all of this. Thank you very much. Antonio Olivo is a local government reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Natalie Bettendorf. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. 
I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.